Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Bill and worship team. Well, if you have your Bibles right there in your home, I hope you do. Uh, You always need your word when we come together. And so open to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Really excited about this week. Um, Each day at noon, it'll be live um, on Facebook, also live on on our website. So if you don't have Facebook, there's Uh, I know a lot of you out there that don't have Facebook and you maybe want to participate with us, you can just go to our website and you can watch live stream that way as well. Um, But we're going to gather every day at noon uh, just to prepare our hearts for Easter Sunday as we contemplate the final week of Christ. So it'll be a a special week together. Then we're going to have a Good Friday service uh, that'll be on our live stream as well. And then a Saturday night service, a Sunday, two Sunday morning services. So a lot going on this week. You can find all the information on our website. It's going to be a powerful week together As God's people. Well, Genesis chapter 6, you'll remember as we've been studying Genesis, coming out from the garden, you've really got two races of people. Uh, You've got the seed of the serpent headed up by Satan. And these are the people who have rejected God. They've rejected his word. They're trusting their own strength. They're trusting their own power. And God will have no regard for their offering. God is not impressed with their works. And then we have the people of God. Um, we've got the seed of the woman headed up by Christ. And these are the people who are trusting in the promise that God's going to send someone who will defeat Satan and bring rest. And we've seen Adam and Seth and Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech. And now we come to this individual that we talked about last week, Noah, whose name means Rest, And they're probably thinking that this is the promised seed of the woman. And we know that Noah is not the Messiah. But what we're going to see this morning is that in Noah's life and ministry, he points us to Christ. He's a type of Christ. We're going to see this as we move throughout Genesis. Um, But you've heard me say that the story of the Bible is a story about Jesus. All of God's word points us to Christ. So, This morning in this man whose name means rest, we're going to see a picture of Jesus. Now, as we pray, as has become customary as we're gathering online, if you've got the availability to get on a knee, I want to ask you if you'd do that this morning. As we pray, not only for the study of God's Word, but we just pray for our nation and pray for those that are struggling during this season. So... Just corporately as a body, if you're able uh, to bend your knees this morning and let's go to the Lord in prayer. So pray with me, church. Father, we, we thank you this morning. We know that you are in control. You're sovereign over all of creation. God, that's so good to know in the midst of all of this chaos that you're in control. And we know that you love us because you demonstrated the depth of your love in the giving of your son, Jesus. And God, this love comforts us. This knowledge of your sovereignty comforts us during this season. God, I I pray for all those that have been affected by this virus. Some even within our own church family. And Lord, right now we pray for their healing. We pray for the doctors. We pray for the nurses. God, give them protection as they serve on the front lines of this virus. God, I pray that you put a hedge of protection around them, that you'd strengthen them. You'd give the doctors wisdom. God, we pray for our nation and its leadership. We pray for President Trump this morning. God, we lift him up to you, asking you to give knowledge and wisdom to him. God, I pray that he would be surrounded by godly men and women 
who would point him to you and your word. And God, I pray that you'd put a hedge of protection around him and Vice President Pence. Lord, I pray for all of our national leaders. I pray for our state and local leaders, God, that you'd give them wisdom as well. Guide, guide and direct them as they make important decisions that affect a lot of people. But God, we ultimately trust in you. So in this season, we just say, Lord, work in our hearts. God, draw us to yourself. Root out sin. May we not be caught asking the why questions. May we, we be asking the what questions. God, what do you want to do? What do you want to teach us? And so, Lord, may we draw close to you. And God, we pray that you would use this season to draw men and women to your son, Jesus. God, we see it happening. You are at work. Your kingdom is growing. You have said it in your word that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And God, we're grateful this morning that we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. God, we thank you this morning for your word. Speak to us today. Enliven your word so that we might draw close to you so that when we, when we finish up this time in your word this morning, God, we'll, we'll be the better for it. We'll have a better understanding of who you are and who we should be. God, use this time for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've read ahead in Genesis and you've looked at these first four verses, you know this already, that these are probably some of the most problematic verses uh, in all of God's word. So I come to this text with much fear and trepidation. And what I want to do is very briefly give you the interpretation that I hold to. There's, there's roughly three primary, maybe two or potentially three primary views when it comes to this passage. I'm not going to give you all the views. I said that when we started Genesis. I'm not going to give you every view. My goal is that it would, it would really whet your appetite this morning to study it for yourself, that you'd want to go and, and gather knowledge and pray about it and read God's word even further. But I, want to, I do want to give you my interpretation. You know this at Lenexa Baptist Church. We don't hide from the difficult text. We just, we just want to work our way through God's word. It's all profitable. But I want to give you uh, the interpretation that, that I hold to. And I want to say on the front end that this um, interpretation is not the easiest according to human experience. Um, it is the oldest interpretation. It is widely held. Um, it is the traditional rabbinical interpretation of this text, but it's not easy to hold according to uh, our experience. And so uh, I have taught this before, and people have looked at me like I got three heads. Uh, so this is not easy according to experience, but I do believe it's the most biblical and I'll show you that in just a moment, and then we'll move. Because it's important to see this, this really helps us to understand the wickedness of Noah's day and where man has gotten to, and it's going to precipitate the judgment that is to come. So look with me, verses 1 through 4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, and note there, the sons of God, that's often a reference to angels, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives to themselves, whoever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide, uh, or your translation may, ha may say strive. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Will not abide with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of 
renowned. So we see man multiplying, and as man multiplies, sin multiplies. And here we see a unique act of evil. And the New Testament gives us insight on this passage. That's why I said I believe this uh, this interpretation is the most biblical because it adheres to the interpretation that Peter and Jude had. And so if you want to jot these verses down, you need to go look at these later. We don't have time this morning to dive into each one of these passages. But Jude 6, 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, and 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. So Jude, verse 6, and 7, and then also 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, and 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. But really, of all the three of those texts, the one that, that to me gets the, gives us the greatest amount of enlightenment, it would be Jude, verse 6. So I want to read that to you. Jude 6 says this, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they indulged in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude, giving us a little more light on this passage, says that you have angels who left their proper abode during the time of Noah. So they left heaven, their proper abode. These are fallen angels. They've crossed the line and they've engaged in uh, activity similar to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Suffice it to say, they went after strange flesh. That's what it says here. And then in 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20, and 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5, we don't have time to turn there, but it also talks about these angels who were disobedient in the time of Noah, and God cast them in uh, to pits uh, and, and to eternal pits of darkness. So according, this is the basis of this, according to Peter and Jude, you have fallen angels who have assumed human form. They did not keep their proper abode. They crossed the line. They went after strange flesh. They have intermarried with, the, with human wives, and uh, they have produced a line of individuals known as Nephilim. Now, according to Genesis 3, 6, the implication is that these fallen angels offered the daughters of men the opportunity to have eternal life or immortality apart from faith in God. In fact, that's what it says in verse 3, I will not strive, or I have uh, translated abide. In the Hebrew, original text didn't have vowels, just consonant. The vowels are uh, added later. And just the difference in one little vowel can mean the difference between strive or abide. Not that big of a difference, but I think abide is better because the offer is being made on the part of these fallen angels that you can have immortality, you can have uh, salvation apart from faith in God. And God says, I'm not going to abide with man forever. You're not going to have that opportunity. You can't go around me. And by the way, would the opportunity to have eternal life apart from faith in God, would that have been a little bit of a temptation during that day? They can't go back to the tree of life. And we just saw last week, and he died, and he died, and he died in a, in a culture that death is spreading out. This must have been an incredible uh, temptation. So I agree. Derek Kidner holds this view that this is abide, and 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 God says you're not going to go around me. And He basically gives them a hundred and twenty day reprieve 
from coming judgment. It says in 120 days, and I'm going to bring judgment. So again, you have fallen angels assuming a human form, intermarrying with human wives, and they produce a line of fallen men called Nephilim, which can mean fallen ones, and they were known as the mighty men of old. So really what you see here at the bottom line is another uh, evil and wicked attempt on the part of man to achieve immortality or eternal life apart from faith in God. And this unique act of evil and wickedness precipitates the impending judgment of God. Now I know that's not the easiest interpretation according to our own modern minds. Our, our, our minds have difficulty with the idea of fallen angels intermarrying with human wives. But while it might not be the easiest translation according to our experience, I do believe on the basis of 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, it is the most biblical. Now, there is one difficulty, the objections people have to this is, is Jesus, you remember in Matthew uh, 24, uh, Jesus is asked, what about this, uh, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? You know, they got this question they bring to him about this, uh, this woman, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? You remember Jesus in response to that says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The implication being that we're not going to marry in heaven just like angels don't marry in heaven. But I think the key phrase there is in heaven. The angels we just talked about here in Genesis chapter 6, they left their proper abode. They're not in heaven. And so I hold to this interpretation. This is a unique act of evil and wickedness that precipitates the judgment of God. Now, I hope that just whet your appetite to go do a little more research on your own and to read these texts and, and to pray about what interpretation you would come to. But that's where I stand. And then in verse 5, moving on, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, we just talked about the wickedness of man. But remember, when God originally looked down on creation, what did he say? He made everything after he made man, gets to the end of the sixth day, what does he say? That's good. He didn't just say that's good. He said that's very good. But now as God looks down upon creation, after the fall, as man has multiplied, he sees what? He sees the wickedness of man is great. He, he sees the sinfulness of man. Sin, that man's sinfulness is now outwardly uh, demonstrated. We see these acts of wickedness. It's not only his sinfulness is not only outwardly demonstrated, but it's inwardly demonstrated. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart. It's, it's interesting here. You don't see anymore a, a serpent coming in and talking men and women into sin. No, they are inherently sinful. Not only are they sinful inwardly, but they are sinful continually. So sin and, and wickedness are now con commonplace. Sin is everywhere. It's continual. Does that sound like our culture today? Wherever you go, you can't hardly turn on a TV without encountering the sinfulness of man. Uh, by the way, just a, my boys this week discovered the Andy Griffith Show. 
Isn't that awesome? Amen. If you, this is a great time to just, they started episode one and they fell in love with it. But we're not making any shows like the Andy Griffith show anymore. But what a show that is. Here we see the sinfulness of man. He is, you could even say it this way, that man is totally depraved. Sin has infected every area of his life, the individual, the family, and all of society. Well, look at the response of God in verses six and seven. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made them. That word sorry, it's often the word repent. God repented, not, not in the sense that God sinned. God cannot sin. He is holy and he is perfect, but he regretted having made man is literally what it means. And he was grieved, which indicates sorrow. And this is important for us to remember. We can't let the sovereignty of God cancel out his emotion. Yes, God is in control of everything, but he's still grieved by the sinfulness of man. And in response to the corruption and the wickedness of man, he's not only grieved, but he intends to do something about it. And so God declares judgment is coming. He says it right there. I will blot out man. It's very plain. You see it again in verse 13. I'm about to destroy them with the earth. That God is not indifferent when we reject him. He's not indifferent when we thumb our noses at his sovereignty and his grace and his commands. He's not indifferent when Lamech in chapter 4 says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to kill and murder, and God can't touch me. I'm not afraid of his judgment. God's not indifferent towards our sin and our rejection of him. And then what we will see is we'll see the mercy of God. So God's going to bring judgment, and his judgment is just. God, God cannot overlook sin But side by side with his judgment, we're also going to see the mercy of God. And you can't fully comprehend the mercy of God until you understand the judgment of God. And so God, in response to the corruption of man, is going to respond with both extreme judgment, but also with extreme mercy and grace. So look with me at verses 8 through 10. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. We, we saw that with Enoch last week, didn't we? Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And here we find that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, as Paul would say to the Romans. We find Noah, a man who found grace. Noah is is marked by the grace of God. His granddaddy's name meant what? When when he dies, judgment's coming. His daddy meant Lamech, his name was Lamech, which meant conqueror. And Lamech has a son now named Rest, Noah. And their thought is, this is the one, this is the child who's gonna give us rest from the toil of our hands, resulting from the curse that God brought on our sin. Can you imagine how many times Noah, as he was growing up, was told, Noah, you are a special child. I bet his family was telling him all the time, Noah, God is bringing judgment, but you are special in the eyes of God, that God in the midst of this wicked world is going to use you in a powerful way. What a powerful picture that that Noah has as a man who is, is marked by God. 
And don't you think that's probably a good example for us as parents as our children are being raised up in what is often a very sinful and wicked world that we would remind them of these same things that Noah was probably reminded of his whole childhood that, that yeah, judgment is coming, but you are special to the heart of God. God loves you and in the midst of a wicked world. He desires to use you in a mighty way. It reminded me of an Anglican pastor uh, whose church, uh, 1709, February 9th, 1709, his church got irritated with him, and uh, they decided to uh, burn his house down. Pretty extreme, um, but, but I guess that's what they did. So uh, they decided to burn his house down. This man and his wife, I believe they had 13 or 14 kids. I was trying to look this up this week. Not all the kids were at home. They had some kids away at boarding school. I think there were eight kids at home at the time this fire started. It started around 11 at night. And uh, so the fire started. The family wakes up, and everybody's able to escape except one child. And they are scared to death for this child. And suddenly, from the second story of the home, this child begins to scream out. They didn't know what else to do, so they just kind of formed a human chain. People standing upon shoulders, and they finally reached up. And just as the ceiling of the home was about to collapse, they plucked this little boy out. And as they they pushed him down this human chain, his mama, Susanna Wesley, was at the bottom of that chain. And she grabbed her little boy, John Wesley. And she said to him, you are a brand plucked from the fire. What a powerful statement. She was telling John Wesley, boy, God must have something really special in store for you. And John Wesley said from the earliest point of his life, he knew that every breath he took was only by the grace of God and that God had his hand upon his life. That was a man who was marked by God. Noah was marked by God. Do you know who else is marked by God? You. God knew you before the foundation of the world and in the midst of a wicked day with judgment coming, God desires to use you in a special way for his glory and his purposes. Noah was marked by God. Not only was he marked by God, he's molded by grace. It says he found favor. Literally, it's the word grace. First time grace is mentioned in scripture. And he doesn't say he earned grace. It says he found grace. If he'd earned it, it wouldn't have been grace. So here you have, in the midst of a world that's completely corrupt, you have one guy holding to the promise. You've got a guy in the midst of a fallen world who's holding on to this promise of God passed down to him by his great-granddaddy and his dad, a granddad and his dad passed down to him that God is going to send someone. And here Noah is holding fast to that promise passed on to him. Whenever I read that, it caused me to think of Timothy when Paul said of Timothy, uh, for I'm mindful of the sincere faith which is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Paul was telling Timothy, you know where you got this? Because you got a godly line who, who clung to Christ and now here you are with the sincere faith in you. Well, here's Noah clinging to the promise of God and he found grace. God was delighted in Noah. In a world that grieved God, Noah pleased God by means of faith. How do I know it was faith? Well, the author of Hebrews, when he talks about Noah, says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
So in the midst of an unbelieving world that had rejected God and was grieving God, Noah trusted in God and he found grace. And this grace molded his life. In fact, if you look in verse 9, it says he was a righteous man and blameless in his time. Listen, verse 9 is not an explanation of how he found grace. It's not like, boy, he really did a good job and then he found the grace of God. No, verse 9 is a consequence of him finding grace, meaning the reality of God's abundant grace on his life caused him to live differently. Folks, isn't that us? That the abundant grace of God that he's demonstrated towards us caused us us to, to desire to live holy and righteous lives. So here's Noah, when everybody else is excelling in the things of the world, Noah's not impressed. When man is corrupting marriage, Noah stood firm on the word of God. He was in what we would call the moral minority. You remember Jerry Falwell telling us about the moral majority? I'm here to tell you today, there is no moral majority in the United States today. But this is where you separate the men from the boys. Listen, it's easy to live the righteousness of God in a monastery. But it's a completely different deal to live out the righteousness of God when you live on Bourbon Street in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. And that's essentially where Noah was living. He lived in a sewer, and yet he didn't stink. He stayed clean. He stayed holy and righteous. He's not just floating downstream with a bunch of other dead fish. He's swimming against the current. That you guys, you can let your marriage go to pieces, but I'm going to hold the marriage institution as sacred. What a powerful picture for us living in the day that we live in. That we too, that know Jesus Christ, our personal Lord and Savior, we found grace, didn't we? And the grace of God compels us to swim upstream in a world that is swimming downstream. Well, not only was he righteous and blameless, but he was a preacher. Now, we don't find this in our Genesis text, but 2 Peter 2, 5 tells us that, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And this, I think, is important to point out because it means that Noah just didn't live quiet, righteous life. No, he had a public ministry. He went public in his identification with God and his faith in him. So he was preaching the salvation of God. He was preaching the righteousness of God. He was preaching the judgment of God. This wasn't some quiet faith in him, him and Miss Noah on about 100 acres out in the back country somewhere building an ark. No, he had a personal faith that produced within him a public ministry. And not only that, I think the most powerful part of Noah's story is that he was obedient You see it in verses 13 and 14. Look with me. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Then look down at verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. God said a a flood is coming. Judgment is about to happen. Build an ark. Imagine this. God says to him, I'm going to destroy everyone. Can you imagine how staggering that must have been? The population of the earth, some estimate, was probably around a million people. I'm going to destroy all of them. Now, you and I, history tells us that God will judge sinners. We have history. We, we have stories like Noah and, and Jonah and Nineveh and Sodom and Gomorrah. We got these stories to look back upon. But what proof of judgment does Noah have Noah's never seen judgment. He's never seen rain. He's never seen God. He's got no empirical evidence to base this on. He has one thing. Do you know what Noah has? One thing. He has the word of God. Throughout the narrative, you'll see over and over again, 
Then God said to Noah. That's all he had, a word from God. I mean, imagine this. Noah, what in the world are you building? I'm building an ark. That thing's kind of big, isn't it? What are you doing? Why has it got to be so big? Well, I got to get two of every animal to get on board that thing. Well, how are you going to get two of every animal on that ark? I don't know. God hadn't told me yet. Well, you know, son, where I come from, we, we build our boats down by the ocean. We're a long way away from the ocean. Well, it don't really matter. Why doesn't it matter? Because the flood's going to come up this far. What's a flood? I'm not real sure. What's going to produce the flood? Rain. What's rain? I don't know. Why in the world is God going to do this? Because judgment is coming. Noah, how do you know God is going to judge the world? Because God told me. Folks, this makes absolutely no sense from a human logical perspective. But that is faith. Faith is believing God's word so much that it leaves our head and it enters our shoes and it affects our obedience. And we obey the word of God even when everything else in our life and experience says otherwise. And please take note, Noah, his faith and obedience, it cost him everything. Think about undertaking this project. It's going to take him approximately 100 years to build it. Whatever job he had, he had to lay it down. Whatever dreams he had, he had to lay those. Whatever was on the calendar for the next 100 years, he had to lay that down too. Noah's present life was governed by a certain future event. Does that sound like us? Living in the midst of a wicked and fallen world, clinging to the promise of God, And all of our life is dictated by a certain future event that Christ will return and we want to be found faithful. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. Powerful, powerful picture of Noah and his faith. You want to know what this story's about? As we've walked through this, and we're going to look at it in a couple weeks after Easter, we're going to come back to this, and we're going to look more closely at the flood. But, But listen, you want to know what this is about? This is about primarily about the sinfulness of man. About the sinfulness of man. Man is a sinner. He's totally depraved. The sinfulness of man has affected him inwardly, outwardly, and continually. No serpent there to talk him into it. He is inherently evil and sinful. We are all sinners. You ever uh, been around somebody and they said, boy, I just have no idea why I did that. Do you know what you could say to them? You could say, I know why you did it. Because you're a sinner. Now, you may not make a whole lot of friends, but hopefully you'll get around the gospel. But listen, we are naturally inclined Towards sin. Because we are sinners, we've been infected with the sin of Adam. This is about the pervasive and invasive nature of sin, but it's also about the judgment of God. God declares judgment is coming. He declared it through Enoch and Methuselah. He declares it through, through Noah. 
and the flood of God's judgment, what do we know? The flood of God's judgment will come. There were a lot of people in Noah's day thought it was a bunch of foolishness. That crazy Noah, all he ever wants to talk about is the judgment of God. And it was all foolishness and it was all ridiculous until what? Until the rain started. And I'm here to tell you today, you can say that you don't believe in the judgment of God, but that makes it no less real. And God takes no pleasure in judgment. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not delight in the, in the flood, but know this as well. He's not indifferent towards your sin. He's not indifferent towards your rejection of him. And his judgment is just because we are sinners. And just as judgment came in Noah's day, it's coming again. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 24 tells us that his return will be similar to Noah's day. Jesus said, uh, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in the days of, uh, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. That just as judgment came in Noah's day, so it will come in our day. In a world of people who could care less about the word of God, the gospel, or the righteousness of God. Judgment is coming. But most importantly, the story of Noah is a story about the abundant mercy and grace of God. In the midst of this wicked world, you have a guy who found grace, meaning it was unmerited and unexplained. And there's a bunch of you today out there watching online, and you found grace. Why are you a believer in Jesus Christ? The only explanation is the grace of God. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. At some point in your life, God just showed up. He peeled back the blinders. He showed you the depth of your sin. He showed you the beauty of Jesus Christ, the only means of your salvation. And by grace, you were saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it was a gift of God so that no one should boast. As we often say, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour that I first believed." That's the mystery of God unexplained and unmerited. And God calls Noah, found grace, he calls him out of the world and he gives him a job. He's to build an ark and he cries out to a lost and dying world that you better get on board because judgment is coming. And the ark is the only means of salvation. Listen, that ark was a big, huge billboard to that world. That God is merciful, but you better get on board his ark of mercy if you want to survive his judgment. And do you know what you see in this story? You see that Noah and his family get on board the ark seven days before it rained. In other words, you had to get on board the ark by means of faith. Because once the rain started, it was too late. Listen, I know in my heart with as many people as we have watching this morning, I know that there are many of you out there that are watching right now and you do not know Jesus Christ. You've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And you need to know right now, today, that you are a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and judgment, judgment is coming. The word of God tells us that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man. 
But here's the best news, the greatest news, is that God is gracious and merciful, and he has provided an ark of salvation in his son, Jesus. The ark in Noah's day, it was the only means of salvation. Jesus today is the only means of salvation. He is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And just as Noah had to get on board by faith, so it is with you. If you know today you're a sinner, and you know today, like all of us, that you cannot save yourself, I pray today you would trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior because judgment is coming. But if you will trust in him, he will forgive your sins. He'll place his Holy Spirit inside your heart. He'll set you down a new path. And when judgment comes, he will lift you up above the waters of judgment and he will carry you home. But if you reject him, God is not indifferent towards your rejection. And when judgment comes, it'll be too late. There's no evangelism at the gates of hell. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word that tells us very plainly who we are. We are sinners. I don't think there's anybody that's listening this morning that has to be convinced of their sin. They know. They see the effects of sin in their life and in this world. We are broken. We are not as we were intended to be. And our sinfulness, our sinfulness puts us in a position of judgment. God, you are just, you are holy. You can't overlook sin. You can't give it a pass. But in your grace and in your mercy, in the greatest act of love ever known to man, you sent your son Jesus who bore the punishment for our sin. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That through faith in him, we might have our sins forgiven, the righteousness of God imputed to our account, and the promise that one day we will be with you forever. God, I pray if there's anybody here listening today that doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. They'd get on board the ark of Jesus Christ so that they would know your salvation. God, we love you and we praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.